Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is the president of Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. He received both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Angelicum in Rome. In 2002, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell was appointed a consultor to the Pontifical Council for the Family by Pope St. John Paul II. He is a Knight Grand Cross of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. A frequent lecturer of EWTN, Dr. O'Donnell is also on the board of advisors for the Institute on Religious Life the Cardinal Newman Society, and our own Institute of Catholic Culture. He has published two books, Heart of the Redeemer and Swords Around the Cross. Dr. O'Donnell and his wife, Catherine, who's joined with us tonight, have nine children and 12, right? Grandchildren? There we go. They reside in... One on the way. One on the way. I, I thought, yeah, because I think it was like 12 and a half last time we were rounding up or something like that. Uh, they reside in Stephen City. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you very much, Andy. Always a joy to be with the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you and to have such a great topic. I even got dressed for it tonight. I know, kind of like, why not fulfill the stereotype, you know? That's okay. Let's begin with the prayer using the words of the ancient prayer attributed to St. Patrick. Is that okay from the Lorica, the deer cry? In Anamalahar, Agasan Vic, Agasan Spirit Neve, Amen. Christ be with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ where I rise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you. The island of salvation, the birth of Celtic Christianity. It's a great time to have this topic and look back in the roots and the glory of that tradition because that tradition is being overwhelmed and almost drowned right now by contemporary situations in Ireland. Very sad, very tragic. I won't belabor it, but we were actually in Ireland the day of that horrific vote. We're actually in Dublin and saw the, the jubilation and the celebration when the culture of death and the snakes came back once again uh, to that country. But there's a real fighting spirit there, and uh, this battle will continue on. But tonight, let's take a look at the contribution of Ireland to Western Christian civilization. It certainly is a very important topic, especially now that we're in the middle of February. It means we're not that far away from... I know Valentine's Day is coming up, I understand, I've been to Walmart, I get it. But the fact of the matter is the great high feast day that normally gives everyone a great break in Lent is coming very, very soon. But the birth and the growth of the 
church in Ireland from a mere outpost on the fringe of Europe. That's what it was, about as far away as you could go from the center of Christianity to a center of Christian piety and incredible learning is a phenomenon worth looking at very, very closely. Country that would one day send forth her sons and her daughters to help re-Christianize a continent. And that's something, especially in our own age, where there's an encroaching paganism and a real need for a new evangelization to take a look at what happened in the past. The accomplishment of these holish Irish monks, which Father Leclerc, in his great work on the history of spirituality, called a mystical invasion, that's what he called what that great missionary outreach was nothing less than miraculous for certainly without the aid of Almighty God some of the events that we'll talk about tonight never would have happened as is the case mentioned in the gospel when they talk about the good seed that falls on fertile soil that's what happened in Ireland the church in Ireland produced 100 fold and anyone who studied medieval history would know that Names such as St. Columkill, St. Aidan, St. Columbana, St. Gaul, St. Killian, St. Fiacra, St. Virgil in Austria, and all those companions, they all poured forth what became known as Insula Sanctorum et Doctorum, the island of saints and scholars. That's what Ireland was called in the Middle Ages. Carry that message of Christ throughout Europe in a time that was very savage and very dark. They carried the faith to Scotland, to England, to Britain, to Gaul, to Switzerland, to Poland, to distant Russia, and to northern Italy as well. And fortunately, in the 20th century, there were a number of scholars who pushed back against sort of the Enlightenment view, that this was the Dark Ages and nothing good ever happened there. You had a German scholar from University of Britain, Henrik Zimmer, uh, Leclerc, Louis Boyer, Christopher Dawson, John Henry Cardinal Newman himself, Henri Daniel Ropes, none of them Irish, by the way, who wrote about this incredible period. Henri Daniel Ropes, the great French uh, historian, actually got a group of scholars and wrote a book, which I highly recommend to you. You could probably still get a used copy of it called The Miracle of Ireland. And just to set the tone for what we're going to do tonight, I'd like to quote from his brief introduction that he did. To, he got a group of Belgian scholars, French scholars, Swiss scholars, and they all contributed to this scholarly work on the miracle of Ireland. That's what he called it. Now, this is Henri Daniel Ropes, the Frenchman, writing. This is what he has to say. The history of Ireland during the Dark Ages is something astonishing and at the same time admirable. The ancient world had collapsed. Rome and her empire were no more than ghosts and nostalgic pictures. All over the West, unchained violence substituted for imperial order. Chaos of darkness, of tears and blood. Christianity, the only power that had survived the disaster, was trying to reestablish a civilization amid all the savagery. But in spite of the heroism of the saints, in spite of the firmness and wisdom of the bishops, what a difficult task the church had before her, a task on which the fact of the future of the world depended. It was then that from a distant island where faith in Christ was extraordinarily alive and active, from an island which had been protected from the risk of invasion, we should perhaps say protected by the intention of divine providence, men set out for the Christian conquest of the continent, giving themselves up 
body and soul to this sublime and necessary work and succeeded better than could have been hoped for plain human forces. Yes, the history of this Celtic Christianity is astonishing and picturesque, bathed in poetry and mystery, battered by high winds and the spray of the sea from those northern mists which arise from the cold sea, legends arise with the spontaneity of a dream. But from them there emerge many personalities with strange outlines, perfectly genuine, but with wondrous destinies. This is a history which is not always met with the notice it deserves, but anyone who studies it fairly will find it of capital importance. This is the history which we need to study. The Irish miracle, as we like to call it, is this second setting out of Christianity from a country which had only just been baptized and which was immediately dreaming of giving Christ back to the world. Ireland between the 5th and the 8th century was like a second Palestine, like a new cradle of the Christian faith. It seemed necessary to pay homage to this work. And here it is. Isn't that beautiful? Henri Daniel Ropes, something worth thinking about. But to understand the birth of Celtic Christianity in this island, let's start with St. Patrick himself. Not green beer, <laughs> not leprechauns, all right? Not now decadent parades, unfortunately. Not revelry, not even lucky charms, which are okay, all right? But let's talk about the man himself who is a saint. We have his writings, we have his confessions, we have a letter that he wrote. We have a number of prayers that are attributed to him. As Professor Owen McNeil once wrote, quote, no one has left so strong and permanent an impression of his personality on a people with the single eminent exception of Moses. In other words, what Moses did for the Jewish people, Patrick did for the people of Ireland. As a matter of fact, you can't think of Ireland without thinking of St. Patrick in a very concrete way. No other occurrence in all of Irish history can compare to the phenomenal and far-reaching event as the arrival of Patrick in 432. It's an event that affected not only the Irish nation, but all of Christendom as well. Now, at this time, the mighty Roman Empire, as we heard, was crumbling everywhere. And uh, you had uh, that Hadrian's Wall up in the northern part of Britain that was crumbling, and those wild Picts and Scots were pouring over that wall, attacking those pro-Roman Celtic Britons that were down there. It was a time, if you looked at it, you would say, this is not a good time to spread the message of the gospel. You know, peace, charity, brotherly love. There was violence, there was war, it seemed everywhere you look. But that's the point. It was precisely at that time when, humanly speaking, oh, you can't do anything with these people. It's ridiculous. Precisely at that time that God was going to send his chosen disciple to that what was really a pagan and war-loving land. As Chesterton, uh, centuries later, was to observe, the great gales of Ireland got alone made mad, for all their wars are merry, and all their songs are sad. Oh, Danny boy. Okay, we won't do that. There's a certain amount of truth uh, to that. 
So first of all, St. Patrick's, his dates. He was born traditionally 387 and died in the year 461. So 387 to 461. Now we learn a lot about him in his confessions. He tells us as a young boy, he wasn't particularly devout. He said we had priests, they were good priests, but we didn't listen to them. Sound familiar? Okay, a young person sort of wandering about, didn't listen to his priest. Something really dramatic happened. The High King of Ireland, the Ardri, Nile of the Nine Hostages at that time, made a great sea raid where sort of the Irish Sea thundered with the, with the Irish oars, and they did a raid on Britain, and that's where they believe that Patrick was born originally, in Celtic, Romano-Celtic Britain. And he was seized in a pirate raid, along with about 1,000 other people, and they were taken across the sea, and they were sold as slaves in Ireland. He was sold to a chieftain named Milku, all right, and was taken way up to Antrim, way up in the north, and was set on a hill to tend sheep. All right, sort of an interesting, if you go to that hill today, you know what you're going to find on that hill? Sheep. Yes, that's right. <laughs> hasn't, cha hasn't changed a great deal. Changed a great deal. Now, it's very interesting, you know, if you've ever been taken away out of your comfort zone, taken away from your home, traveled for an extended period of time, I think it's really true you find that you tend to pray more, right? When your natural supports are taken away, the things that sort of make you comfortable, you pray more. Sometimes separation from a spouse or whatever it might be, some type of difficulty or disaster, you tend to pray more. Don't you think that's true as Catholics? Absolutely, all right? We pray more when we suffer. When things are going great, thank you, Jesus, uh, and we're on with everything that's going along. Something difficult happens, boom, you pray. Well, while Patrick was enslaved and was sold to this chieftain, he went through what we would call his second conversion. And knowing the real Patrick is important. And he writes about it in his confessions. These are Patrick's own words now. I just ask you to drink it in with your spirit as we reflect together tonight. Now, after I had arrived in Ireland, tending flocks was my daily occupation. And constantly, I used to pray in the daytime. The love of God and the fear of him increased more and more in my heart. And faith grew, and the spirit was roused. So that in one day, I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and at night, nearly as many. Even while I was out in the woods and on the mountainside, before daybreak, I used to be roused to prayer, and I felt no hurt, whether there were snow, frost, or rain, nor was there any sluggishness in me. So everything's taken away, and he has this spiritual awakening. Some of those words that maybe the priest had mentioned to him, the importance of faith, suddenly come alive, and he finds himself praying constantly throughout the night, throughout the day, regardless of what the weather might be. And so eventually what happens to him, it's very intriguing, he ends up being a slave for a long period of time, probably about six years, from roughly 403 to about you know, 409. But he has this intense dream. Have you ever had a dream where it's so real it lingers into the day? Like, you know what's a dream, but you're kind of like you're still going through it in the day and you can't kind of shake whatever it is. Well, he has a dream that he was supposed to flee. And in this dream, it said, get up, go down that road. You will find a ship at the end of the road that will take you back to your people. 
And so he wakes up. Now, this is a terrifying thing because you're a runaway slave, which means you could be killed or if you're recaptured, they could brand you, you know, on your forehead and mark you in that way for the rest of your life. Or you could just be killed. He gets up and starts walking down that road. The road went for 200 miles. Okay. He ends up walking for 200 miles. Eventually, he comes to the sea. It is an island after all. All right. But he sees a ship right at the shore, just as he'd been told God had spoken to him in this dream. And they're loading great Irish wolfhounds to sell on the continent. And so he comes up to the captain and says to him, God has told me that you're to take me on board your ship and take me back to my family. And the captain said, I'm not taking you on board. But fortunately, some of the sailors hear this. And he said, he made a reference to God. And so maybe to ensure that we have a successful voyage, maybe we should take this, this young boy on board with us. And so uh, they decide to take him on board. And he has a number of adventures, but eventually he's restored back with his family. Now, can you imagine after six years, he's restored back to his mother and father and the rest of his family. If you've been gone for six years, taken away by Irish Raiders, you probably think he's dead. We're never going to see him again. Imagine the intensity of the joy when the prodigal son returns. All right. Plus, he comes back a believing Catholic, which, is, which makes it even better for the parents when he returns. So there's this powerful union and all that sort of emotion. Now, it's intriguing to think, you know, when you have someone who has enslaved you and not treated you well, all right, the normal human reaction would be to what? You become bitter. You become angry. You can be consumed with hatred, which is a cancer that doesn't punish the people that enslaved you. It really ends up just punishing you, all right? But interesting about the man, because he has found his faith, he doesn't think that way. There's a certain sorrow for those who had done and treated him this way. And so, while he's back with his family, he has another one of these incredibly intense dreams that he describes in his book, The Confession. And again, listen, the actual words of Patrick himself. And there I saw a vision during the night, a man coming from the West. His name was Victoricus, and he had with him many letters. He gave me one to read, and the beginning of it was the voice from Ireland. I then thought it to be the voice of the inhabitants of the Fulcut Wood, adjoining the Western Sea. They appeared to cry out in one voice, saying, Come to us, O holy youth, walk among us. With this I was feelingly touched and could read no longer. I then awoke. One of those dreams so powerful, so disturbing that it touched his heart in the deepest and in the most profound way imaginable to the point where he's going to change his life. And he then conceives upon the fact that he wants to go back to Ireland and bring to these pagan people the message of Jesus Christ. Now, this begins sort of an interesting period in his life he prepares for this mission for almost 22 years. It seems that he left Britain, sailed across the Channel, and went to France. It is believed that St. Martin of Tours was his uncle on his mother's side. And so he spent some time at St. Martin's Monastery toward learning about the monastic life. There is also a tradition that he went down into the Mediterranean and studied at the Isle of Larens. There you had St. Honoratus, and there was a strong monastic discipline teaching asceticism and prayer, very similar to the Eastern monks. And there it appears that he was formed in the monastic tradition. Eventually, he 
went and associated himself with St. Germain of Auxerre, who was one of the great bishops in the church at that time, a great champion of orthodoxy, and there he learned the faith. He was a great opponent of Arianism, defending the divinity of Christ. So he would have learned the monastic tradition and that fierce fidelity to the orthodox Catholic faith from St. Germain. Now, eventually, after all of this preparation, he must have shared with St. Germain his desire to go back to Ireland. So they're preparing for him a great opportunity to be ordained bishop. Now, before you ordained bishop at that time, you had to go through what was called a scrutiny. You know, where you'd be presented to the people and you would be questioned to see, is this man fit and worthy? Now, in the Celtic tradition, there's a beautiful tradition where they have a soulmate, what they call an, an anamkara. An anamkara is a soulmate, uh, someone that you would be like, we would call today like your best friend, but even more than your best friend, because you would share everything with this friend, including your spiritual life, all right? What your temptations were, what you were struggling with in prayer, all right? But this was a companion you could bounce things off. Well, at this scrutiny, something horrible happens. He's about ready to be ordained a bishop, going through the scrutiny. His Anamkara, his dearest friend, stands up and publicly in front of everybody reveals some sin that Patrick had committed as a young man. We don't know what the sin was. Might have been idolatry. We have no idea what it was. But then everyone is shocked, disturbed, and they say, I'm sorry, we, we can't ordain you a bishop. We can't send you on this mission and he is rejected. And Patrick in the confession just breaks your heart. He says, on that day, I was thrust at and sorely shaken that I should fall and never rise again. Imagine you spent 22 years of your life preparing for this mission and you're rejected. They select another man named Palladius and Palladius will be sent over for this mission to Ireland to help convert the people of Ireland. But it has a happy ending because Palladius is there for about a year, he gets killed. All right. That's okay. He's a martyr. He went to Jesus. I'm sure it's, it's fine. And then they say, well, maybe we're a bit too hasty. Maybe we should reconsider Patrick again. And uh, actually, they do. And so Patrick will be selected. He'll be consecrated a bishop. He receives the approval of Pope Celestine I in Rome, and he sets off to Ireland. This is in the year 432, the beginning of the Irish mission. He comes over and meets a petty chieftain by the name of Dico. He says, I need to celebrate mass. He says, well, I have a barn. So he goes to a barn and he celebrates his first mass in Ireland in a barn. He wants to go back and try to reach the chieftain that had enslaved him. So he goes back up to see Milko. Milko was an old pagan and the tradition tells us that he was enraged that Patrick was coming back. He actually set his house on fire and went in and committed suicide as Patrick was arriving. So talk about a horrible way to start your mission and Patrick begins lamenting, weeping that he is lost, that Milko has lost him. He's lost him, lost his soul. So, what is he going to do? He knows the Ardri, which is the Irish for the High King, dwells in Tara. These magnificent wood buildings, nothing survives now, but there was a huge banqueting hall. So he goes up on Slain Hill, which is a hill which you can still see. They still have a ruined monastery, beautiful statue of Patrick up on Slain Hill. And it happens to be Easter Vigil. Now, you've all been to Easter Vigil, haven't you? What's the first thing you do when you go to Easter Vigil? You light the fire, all right? Now, fire is sacred to the Druids. No one is supposed to light a fire 
all right, during the spring solstice, unless you are a druid in the king's palace. He lights this enormous fire up on Slain Hill. It's dramatic. You can see it for miles away. The story tells us that one of the druids said, unless that fire is extinguished, it will spread throughout all of Ireland. And they told the high king, Laurie, your kingdom will be, your kingship will be weakened. So he sent a group of soldiers up. They can't find anybody but the fire because Patrick has already gone down to meet the king. All right. All they find is a herd of deer. So there was a whole legend that Patrick transformed himself into and his followers into deer. That's where that whole story comes. That's why the Lorica, that prayer of protection we read at the beginning, they call it the deer cry. All right. So he comes in and according to the story, very dramatic, very powerful. The king says no one should rise to show respect. He walks in, but people are so impressed by him that the king's chief bard rises, all right? Two of the king's daughters also rise, showing deference to Patrick. Patrick preaches, requests that the king give him permission to preach and provide protection. The king never converts, all right? But the king does give him his protection, allows him to preach the gospel freely throughout the kingdom of Ireland. So, for the next 30 years, Patrick travels all over Ireland, north, south, east, and west. According to the tradition, every part of the country was touched by the power of his preaching. On the plains of County Cavan, there was a great pagan idol, along with 12 other idols. It is said that he went there in a dramatic moment, overthrew all of those idols, knocked them down, and nothing happened. And so they began to see that there was a power, there was a strength in this man. Other powerful memories associated with Patrick. The great mountain in County Mayo, some of you might have heard of Crow Patrick, which in July, you know, they climb up to the top of the mountain. He spent 40 days fasting in prayer up on that mountain, exposed to the rain wind, bringing only a few loaves of bread and living on rainwater. Everyone thought he was dead. But then he survived Lent, comes down at Easter, summons the faithful, they see that he's still living, and his holiness is obvious. And so many of the chiefs submitted to the rite of baptism. Then their people began to do that too. And to this day, in memory of that great Lenten tradition of asceticism, which he would have learned, of course, at Larens and also at St. Martin's Monastery, is something that he begins to bequeath uh, to the Irish people. In 441 AD, he is confirmed in the faith and in his apostolate by none other than Pope Leo the Great, said you're doing a great thing, continue on to communicate and baptize these people. There's also an ancient tradition that he spent another Lent, this tradition of this asceticism, at a beautiful place called Loch Derg, way up in a remote part of County Donegal, way in the far northwest, where he went to in a cave where tradition said he had a vision of heaven, hell, and purgatory, but spent this time fasting and praying in this cave. That also became a great tradition of Irish pilgrimage. To this day, it still continues. It's the pilgrimage to what they call St. Patrick's Purgatory. If you do it, it is like purgatory, because you fast from sleep for 24 hours, you're on bread and water. It is a real tough pilgrimage, but very much in the patrician spirit. And you can really feel the spirit of Patrick. I did it once uh, in the year uh, 1999 with my son. I'll just share with you that it, at about two in the morning when you're, it's hard to pray, you're just kind of willing it and they give you a little bit of water and you can put pepper in it and I'm trying to pretend it's bouillon and my son Hugh's cold and freezing. He said, Dad, why are we doing this? And then there were two Irish women said, oh, where are you from? They said, well, we're from America. And he says, are you having a good time? <laughs> And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, you know what? 
you know, I'm thinking to myself, a good time is having a gin and tonic and walking on the beach or something. This is not a good time. And I said, well, it's, it's, we're really happy we're here. And they said, and they said, this is our 18th time doing it. My son leaned over and said, dad, these people need a psychiatrist. <laughs> but again, it was beautiful to see the spiritual tradition and that, and that patrician spirit of asceticism, you know, continuing on. Eventually, he will die in 461 and will be buried at Saul Patrick, uh, in Down Patrick in 461. But looking at the great Patrick of history from his writings and reading his confession is a great spiritual exercise. Might be something you might even take uh, into a chapel for adoration with you and read it, read it slowly and prayerfully. What emerges is a real man who just passionately was in love with Jesus Christ, deeply versed in the scripture, deeply versed in his Catholic faith. What did he do? He is the one who was responsible for organizing Christianity in Ireland. He converted all sorts of pagan kingdoms. And the amazing thing why in the history of evangelization, this is so remarkable, he did this in three decades. He did have help, that's true, but without bloodshed. You had a pagan, war-loving land. And aside from the death of his charioteer who got run through with the lance. Nobody died. There was no history of martyrdom in this conversion. And he brought Ireland into contact in a very beautiful and profound way with the Catholic Church and with all of Christendom. So he certainly was aided by other bishops and priests who came from the continent. As a matter of fact, one of his contemporaries, St. Segundius, who was a bishop at that time, wrote a beautiful hymn uh, a whole series of stanza poetry praising Patrick for his virtues. The fact that he lived at the very time of Patrick shows how Patrick was truly a great historical figure and the leader of this incredible mission that led to the conversion of so many people. Now, Patrick's converts found an incredible fervor to embrace the faith, and it shouldn't surprise us that they lived it out primarily in the eremitical and the monastic tradition. Patrick himself says, even during his ministry, during those 30 decades, he says, I cannot begin to count the number of individuals who wanted to be consecrated virgins or to embrace the monastic life or the eremitical life, the life of being a hermit. And so this happened and spread everywhere. People wanted to live poverty, chastity, and obedience. The fervor with which these Celtic peoples in Ireland embraced the faith is truly astounding. That monastic rule became so important to them for a number of reasons. First of all, because there were no great cities in Ireland. Ireland was essentially a rural agricultural country. There are no real cities in Ireland until the coming of the Vikings. Almost all the cities you see along the Irish coastline, right? Dublin, Waterford, Wexford, Limerick. Galway. Those were all, there were Irish settlements there, but they became Viking trading establishments. And that's where those cities came from. So basically it was rural. There weren't cities. So when Patrick appointed bishops in, clear, in certain areas, there were no clear dioceses. So unlike the continent in Europe where you had cities, right? Romanized cities, you had Paris, you had Saguntum, you had Rome, you had Padua, etc. You didn't have clearly defined dioceses. So immediately the bishop began to live more like an abbot. The way Augustine was with his priest, you know, Augustine would live in community with his priest and they would do community prayer, pray the divine office, chant the Psalms, etc. That's what you had in Ireland. 
But within a generation, you have all of these incredible foundations of monasteries that grew and began to flourish and actually became great monastic schools. Before you had the rise of the European universities, St. Enda out on the Aran Islands, all right, built a beautiful monastery there with seven churches, so you could do the seven church pilgrimage like you would do if you were going to Rome. St. Finian at Clonard, St. Finbar at Moville, St. Kieran, the great monastery at Clonmacnoise, right in the center, which became an incredible center of study and learning, centuries before the establishment of Oxford and Cambridge University of Paris. But uh, in addition to that, St. Kevin at Glendalough, his beautiful monastery was established. St. Columkillus, established a famous monastery at Derry, but also traveled in exile to Iona. And Iona, just off the coast of Scotland, became a center for the evangelization of the Northern Picts, Scotland, and the Kingdom of Northumbria. An amazing, amazing thing to see. This blossoming of the faith and this passionate love. If you read the prayers, if you read the poetry composed at that time, they were in love with Jesus, passionately in love with the Blessed Mother and embrace the fullness of the Catholic faith, to the point that even if you're speaking Irish and you want to say good morning, you say, Giudic, you know, which means, you know, God be with you. And the response is, Giudic, God and Mary be with you. That's, how you. that's how you speak to one another in Irish. It affects the language, it affects the culture so deeply. But at all these monasteries, Patrick also brought Latin and the study of Latin. And so the Irish became great Latinists, great grammarians, the study of music, astronomy, so many other things, even the study of Greek. And the reason this was the case is Ireland did not undergo the chaos of the rest of Europe. Ireland was never part of the Roman Empire. So when Roman political authority and military authority was withdrawn, you had the invasion of the numerous barbaric tribes, which you all know from your general history. Ireland was untouched. That didn't happen. And so many people wanted to study, came to Ireland because of the peace and the stability that was found in Ireland at that time. And the testimony to the incredible work that was being done, particularly in illuminated manuscripts, the writing of the Gospels, the Book of Kells, which was considered to be one of the wonders of the Western world, today preserved at Trinity College in Dublin. They turn one page every day. If you ever had a chance to go to Dublin, you should really go see the beautiful exhibit they have on the Book of Kells. The colors, the intricacy of the late, the love that they had for the Word of God. That would, they would take one word, like the opening word from Luke's Gospel, and devote an entire page to illuminating, illuminating that particular word as a source of meditation. Scholars today and specialists looking still aren't sure how were they able to do this. It takes, it takes a magnifying glass to see some of the beautiful lace work that is done on these illuminated manuscripts. Incredible works of art. The Lindisfarne Gospels the same way. But in addition to that, you had other unique works of art that were produced by these Irish monks. The Celtic crosses. You've all seen Celtic crosses. These magnificent carvings in stone. And what's interesting, on some of them, we have found traces of pigment which means that they might have actually been brightly colored the way their manuscripts were. You know, the Irish love color because the sky's rainy and gray all the time. But you know, you know how you got bright yellow doors, green doors, red doors, etc. Some of our friends, we go, we say, we've never gone behind a red door and found something that wasn't a lot of fun in terms of, in terms of Irish pubs and things like that. It's such a welcoming sign to see. 
But it seems that a lot of these Celtic crosses which had a traditional pattern where you would see Christ crucified on one side and on the backside Christ coming in judgment. But you would have different scenes of the fall, etc. It seems that a lot of times these were used for catechetical purposes. The way oftentimes stained glass window in the Middle Ages would be used to teach people their faith. You would have carving in stones. The monks would point out this is the fall and Christ is the second Adam now redeeming. And of course the great ring indicating that the sacrifice of Christ was a cosmic sacrifice, renewing not only the face of the earth, but the entire cosmos was renewed by this. And when he comes at the end of time, he will come as judge. So all of these things communicating the faith. Other things that you find only in Ireland, the round tower. You don't find this on the continent, but the beauty of the round tower, used, they believe, to summon people uh, to prayer with the ringing of the bell. But what's interesting, as these monasteries grew and began to thrive, they became centers not only of religious faith, they became the equivalent of cities incredible monastic cities. And you had students flocking from far away Egypt, from Rome, among Britain, among the Saxons, from France, from Spain. It is estimated that there were over 3,000 students at one time studying at Clonmacnoise. Amazing achievement. We know that there were even Greeks that traveled from Greece to study in Ireland. Out on the Aran Islands at St. Enda's Monastery, there's a graveyard where there were about eight Greek tombs and the inscriptions are all written in Greek. An amazing tribute. But the Venerable Bede uh, spoke about the incredible achievement of many of these Irish monastic schools in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People. This is Bede writing now, just in what Venerable Bede, the Englishman, writes. Forsaking their native island, either for the sake of divine studies or a more continent life, and some of them presently devoted themselves to a monastical life, others chose rather to apply themselves to study, going about from one master's cell to another. The Irish, willing to receive them all, took care to supply them with food and also furnished them with books to read and their teaching gratis for free. So that's what you did during these, this dark period in terms of European history. The great German scholar who examined uh, the level of culture at these Irish monasteries that eventually was going to be exported over the seas to these other countries as well, Something that deeply impressed Professor Henrik Zimmer. This is what he has to say, just to give you a sense, because generally this is not spoken about. It tends to be passed over many, many times. He writes, Ireland can indeed lay claim to a great past. She can not only boast of having been the birthplace and abode of high culture in the 5th and 6th centuries, at a time when the Roman Empire was being undermined by the alliance and inroads of German tribes, which threatened to sink the whole continent into barbarism but also of having made strenuous efforts in the 7th up to the 10th century to spread her learning among the German and Romance peoples, thus forming the actual fountain of our present continental civilization. Isn't that powerful? Christopher Dawson writes about the same thing. Other things that the Irish did, that they, a lot of times you wouldn't even know about it unless you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church very carefully. They also, wherever they went, brought the practice of their penitentials. Now, what were penitentials? Penitentials were sort of like guidebooks for confessors. They were written in Latin, and for every sin that you could possibly commit, they wrote down an appropriate penance. 
I remember from my Latin class, we used to translate the sins. We got a big kick. Oh my gosh, who thought of that? <laughs> <All right. laughs> but for every conceivable sin, you had an appropriate penance. But it's very interesting because what they spread wherever they went was the practice of private auricular confession. You right remember in the early church when you went to confession, you had to be a big sinner and there would be a public expression of faults. You had to do penance publicly, all right? It's very interesting. All of you have a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, don't you? Please remember section 1447. I'm going to read part of it to you. 1447. This is what the Catechism of the Catholic Church has to say about the practice of the great sacrament of reconciliation. Quote from the Catechism. During the 7th century, Irish missionaries inspired by the Eastern monastic tradition, took to continental Europe the private practice of penance, which does not require public and prolonged completion of penitential works for reconciliation with the church. From that time on, the sacrament has been performed in secret between penitent and priest. This new practice envisioned the possibility of repetition, and so opened the way to a regular frequenting of this sacrament. It allowed the forgiveness of grave sins and venial sins to be integrated into one sacramental celebration. In its main lines, this is the form of penance that the church has practiced down to our day. Do you know that? Okay, so Irish monks brought this practice, which became so important and so significant uh, to continental Europe. So the bringing of the penitentials, very important. And these penitentials at a time, remember there was a lot of torture, there was a lot of violence and warfare. It brought a refinement of moral conscience to the continent through this understanding of striving for moral goodness and seeking to avoid sin. But these missionaries sailed out into a sea of chaos. Many of them said, we'll just trust ourselves to the Holy Spirit. They just put out on a boat with no oars, just hoisted the sail. Some went up to Iceland, some went up to Scandinavian. The famous St. Brendan, we believe, with oars, actually made it all the way to Newfoundland. If you've ever seen the voyage of Brendan, people thought, oh, that was just a myth. It never could have happened until Tim Severin in the 1970s refashioned a boat and put out and actually made it across the Atlantic in the wintertime and made it all the way to Newfoundland to say this is something that could have been done. Fascinating to look at all of these things. But they were great missionaries. But there was sometimes tension, and we should at least bring this up, because sometimes you'll hear people talk about, oh, there was an independent Celtic church that did not respect Rome and was not really Catholic. That's bogus, all right? Patrick was a bishop. Patrick was the one who founded the church. He was commissioned by Pope Celestine. He was confirmed in the faith by Leo the Great. This is all important to remember. What did happen that caused some tension were practices of discipline. The Celtic church had a different tonsure, for example, than the continental church. You know, I'm working on a good tonsure right now, <laughs> continentally. I mean, they would shave the crown of the head, you've probably seen. My kids always say, Dad, we can spot you a mile away. All right. They would shave the crown of the head. The Irish monks didn't do that. They would shave the front of the head of the sign of their consecration and let the hair grow long in the back. All right. Now, essentially, it's a sign of consecration, but it's one of those things that freak people out. You know, you're doing things a little different. Also, how many of you have seen Braveheart? Okay, you know the blue, f well, I'm not advocating, you do. All right, <laughs> I've only seen it like 20 times. All right, so, <laughs> but you know the blue face paint that they put, it's called Wotan, okay? A lot of times the monks, when they would go on pilgrimage so they were warriors for God, would put the blue paint on, sometimes on the eyelid. So you can imagine these ascetic monks landing in Gaul 
coming in to preach the gospel, speaking in Latin or sometimes in the Celtic language or trying to learn the language with the long hair, with the shaved head, with the blue makeup on. It's kind of like, who are those guys? <laughs> All right. And sometimes it led to certain conflict with the bishops in Gaul, etc. But it was never on a point of doctrine. Does that make sense to everybody? Now, another thing that caused some problem was they really exalted the monastic life. Many of the bishops in Ireland began to function as abbots. All right. Now, the bishop maintained his proper sacramental function, right? Only the bishop could ordain, right, etc. Only, you know, the bishop could give the sacrament, you know, of confirmation and things like that. But the abbots came to have, because they were so influential, became increasingly important to the point where it's not unusual to find in Celtic literature in the 7th to the 8th century references to the pope as being the abbot of Rome, because that was considered a thing. And they actually refer to the devil as the abbot of hell. All right. But it shows you the emphasis, the importance of that type of monastic life. So wherever the Irish evangelists came, all sweeping all over the continent, they brought Irish practices. The Irish understanding of Latin, the Irish understanding and reading of Greek, the Irish copying of manuscripts, Irish forms of prayer, and their own monastic rule, particularly up in Northern Europe. Down in the South, you had Benedict with his rule, which was far more mild. Columbanus was a far more penitential type of rule. But as you could well imagine, because in Ireland, uh, and this was true down like to the 16th century, you had one meal a day, and that was dinner. All right, you had your dinner. So what are you gonna do in Lent? You see my point. That's why you look at some of the penitential practices and say, that's suicidal, that's crazy. But your know, life was a lot harder then, you know? You didn't have hot showers, you didn't have hot food, you know? And so things were very difficult. So if you really wanted to offer something up to Jesus, it had to be really difficult, all right? So you have to always understand those things within historical context. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So just within a century after Patrick's great preaching and his mission, you have a, what Leclerc calls a mystical invasion, all of them going all over Europe to Britain, even as far away as Russia. Columbanus ended up in northern Italy, established the great monastery at Bobbio, but also Luxul, uh, San Gallen in Switzerland, Irish foundation. There are over 80 Irish minus monasteries that you can find all over Europe that had Irish foundations, were founded by Irish monks and staffed by Irish monks for centuries, bringing culture, bringing the faith and evangelizing. St. Virgil of Salzburg, who helped get the salt mines of Salzburg underway, all right, to help the people out. St. Killian, who was a martyr defending marriage uh, in the great town of Würzburg on the Mainz River in Germany, who eventually, you know, St. Boniface came and brought his relics back and, and put them in the cathedral. He's now the patron saint of the city of Würzburg. But you see this all over Europe. And this is why it's kind of sad that so much of this Irish tradition was suppressed and beaten down because of what happened to Ireland in her history. And it really was European scholars from Belgium, France, and Germany that found all of this out. For example, the life of St. Bridget, the Mary of the Gale. You know how many manuscripts of the life of St. Bridget they have in Ireland? None, not one. There are 80 manuscripts of the life of St. Bridget found all, scattered all over Europe. And that's what they can find. Ah, there were Irish monks here who helped to evangelize the country at this time. Now, as I had said, there was no tradition of martyrdom, but that ended in the ninth century with the coming of the Vikings, or when the Vikings came. 
the great monastery at Bangor that had uh, over 900 monks. In one day, 900 monks were slaughtered by the Vikings when they landed there. Imagine losing 900 monks in one day. Uh, Skellig Michael, which everyone knows now uh, because of Star Wars, because it's where they filmed Star Wars. It's a ghost town. But that was the subject of a Viking raid. The monks were slaughtered, never came back. But you can go visit it. It's amazing. It's like a monastic ghost town. It's been perfectly preserved from the day that it was assaulted by the Vikings. There was a recovery after the Vikings. Eventually, we had Brian Boru, who wins the great battle of Clontarf and uh, drives the Vikings into the sea so there's a reemergence. But then, of course, in 1172, you have the Norman invasion. And when you have the Norman invasion, 1172, that causes all sorts of chaos. I mean, they're all Catholics, but then there's ethnic problems. Henry VIII and Elizabeth with the Protestant revolt makes things really really messy because then you're going to have seven centuries of fierce horrific persecution where an example of fidelity a tradition of martyrdom penal laws that made it illegal for a catholic to own a horse to own land etc it goes on a, you couldn't vote you couldn't be a lawyer you couldn't do go to school all of these things the mass was outlawed there was a price put on the head of the catholic priest the faith that patrick part was brought to ireland was persecuted for centuries where people would gather out in remote regions around a mass rock and they would post a century and oftentimes the century was a layman and they would address the layman in a black cassock so if he was spotted because it was a great reward if you caught a priest and you could lose your job you could lose your life if you were attending mass i wonder how many of us if we knew we might lose our job or might lose our life if we attended sunday mass would still find a way to get to sunday mass one of the things we do with our students, we have a program in the summer, the St. Columkill Institute, we lead them to become new leaders in the evangelization. We always make sure that includes a mass at a prayer rock. We go to one of those mass rocks where two priests actually were killed, and we talk about the priests that were killed, and we do some readings there. But it's very, very moving. And I think those masses have had a greater impact on me, kneeling in the mud, thinking of the sacrifice that these people made to receive Jesus in the Eucharist than the most beautiful pontifical mass in St. Peter's. Because you realize the tradition of suffering, the suffering of heroism. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because it's a tradition that cannot be forgotten and cannot be lost. And right now, it's being downplayed and pushed aside as if it doesn't really matter at all. But that tradition of fidelity is so important. The birth of Christianity, Celtic Christianity, on this island. Truly an amazing thing. It's part of the supernatural order because God's grace clearly was working through Patrick, through the bishops, through the monks, and through the abbots. But just considering the extent of where they went, you think of what Christ's final words to his disciple, right? Did he say, go forth, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And of course, as the Father sends me, I also send you. That was the message that was taken by a young boy of 16 who was enslaved, but found his faith, found his life, found his future, found his vocation in the midst, in that crucible of suffering, went back to his family and gave everything up for that pearl of a great price, and went back to people who had despised him, who had abused him, who had humiliated him, and brought back love, goodness, and became a unique channel of grace that affected not only Ireland, but the entire world. Thank you for listening to me tonight. God bless you. Thank you so much. 
Some resources you might be uh, interested in. Recently, uh, Dr. O'Donnell wrote an article in the uh, Principles, uh, is it magazine? I guess you, magazine. Is Catholic Ireland dead? We're going to include a link to this article in the uh, further study email that we'll send out, but just as to uh, whet your appetite here, he shares with us a quote from Pope St. John Paul II, written in 1979, and just see how kind of, uh, <clears throat> I mean, this is not the only time where His Holiness said something, and then lo and behold, it becomes true, right? But so here's a quote, 1979, this is from Pope St. John Paul II, prophetically warning 300,000 people gathered in Limerick for Mass, uh, and I quote, Lay people today are called to a strong Christian commitment to permeate society with the leaven of the gospel, for Ireland is at a point of decision in her history. The Irish people have to choose today their way forward. What a victory the devil would gain. What a blow he would inflict on the body of Christ in the world if he could seduce, seduce Irish men and women away from Christ. Now is the time of testing for Ireland. Uh, so very interesting article. We'll include a link to that. Also, a couple talks that you might be interested in from the Institute. One was recently given by Dr. Brendan McGuire, past quarter, Out of the Mist, The Rise of the Ancient Celtic People, uh, a talk that would give more context for tonight's talk as well. Also going further into the past, uh, The Confession of St. Patrick, um, and then also um, Dr. Cutterback gave a talk on this theme of fasting. You might be interested in it. We'll include a link in the email, but if you want to write it down. Fasting and feasting, learning to live the Catholic tradition. And uh, just lastly, um, Dr. Clayton will be giving a talk in the third quarter, Illuminated by God, an artistic study of the Book of Kells. And that's going to be an online webinar uh, which is just kind of perfect format. You know, you can zoom in on pictures and look at the uh, intricate details and whatnot. So things to keep on your radar as they come forward. Thank you, Doctor, for speaking. Given that Ireland of the medieval period, the early medieval period was largely rural, like the Ireland of the 19th century when Catholic emancipation happened, why did the church impose the European continental system as opposed to bring back the more successful monastic rural system of the early medieval period that worked then? It depends on what period you're talking about. Uh, the monastic tradition continued to flourish uh, even after the Vikings were destroyed. The great mendicant tradition of the Franciscans, the Dominicans, Augustinians, Cistercians, Carthusians, they all came and did monasteries. And because they had embraced uh, you know, the monastic form of life, poverty, chastity, obedience, they found a great welcome among the people of Ireland, particularly in the areas where the native chieftains held sway uh, at that particular time. But in a very real sense, after you have the, the arrival of the Vikings, you do have the establishment of cities and, you know, and, and greater order in the country in the sense of where those where it was possible where you could have a bishop with a proper jurisdiction. So the Irish church itself began a series of reforms where they came up with four archbishoprics and went after the continental model because there was a desire to bring greater order, greater stability to the church. It felt it, would, it was a force that would lead to greater unity within the church. And so that's why what we, you would probably call the continental form was eventually brought to Ireland. But by that time, there were actual cities and most of the churchmen in Ireland at the time wanted to have greater order. 
Does that make sense? I don't know if that if that helps a little bit. I mean, the Franciscans were still under the Franciscans, you know, Dominicans under the Dominicans. But in terms of the secular clergy, uh, Armagh had always 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 been considered the primatial see. The tradition was that Patrick had established Armagh as the primatial see, but then because of the the, the total enthusiasm for the monastic tradition and the, the fact that the diocese weren't clearly defined, that sort of submerged. But there were strong ecclesiastical movements for reform that occurred, not just on the continent, but also in Ireland itself. And I think the desire for greater uniformity and to sort of follow more in the Roman tradition, recognizing the authority and the precedent that was sent by Rome, uh, I think that was viewed by the churchmen in Ireland as desirous. Good evening. I just was wondering, in light of your mention of St. Kieran in your lovely talk, are you aware of the great living saint who now has departed as of February 2nd in the Carmelite order, we believe to be a canonized saint someday, Father Kieran Cavanaugh, who's the writer, translator, great theology, mystical scholar of our Discalced Carmelite order in Washington, D.C.? Unfortunately, it's a very easy answer. No, I, I, I don't. But I would, like to, I would like to learn more. Do you think that other European countries like France, for example, contributed equally to the establishment of Christianity in Europe, or was Ireland unique among European countries in influencing Europe's conversion? Oh, there were, no, I don't want to give it as this was totally a completely Irish sort of thing. Not at all. Benedict, you know, of Nursia established a monastery and that monastic tradition spread also and eventually came to dominate and took over the Irish, uh, the Irish monast monastic tradition. As a matter of fact, on Columbanus's tomb at Bobbio, it has written in Latin that he was a disciple of St. Benedict. That's what they've actually carved on, the Benedictines carved that there. No, but there were many other instances where, you know, eventually there were missionaries that came out of England you know, that evangelized as well. Uh, St. Martin of Tours, but the, the point is that there was a fresh impetus that was given. And I think in the midst of the chaos, the establishment of these monastic centers that, were, that the Irish knew that were really thriving, this was mostly a Northern European experience. And whereas many times, most of the initial evangelization in what had been the Roman Empire primarily took place in cities. That's why the word pagan, you know, someone was pagan, a Pagani was someone who lived out in the country in the rural area, but they specifically went out into remote regions. The irony of this, there was a strong eremitical tradition, a sense of missionary outreach, but also uh, her, the, the eremitical life too, where they would want to go out, but they would go out to these remote regions, but then people would flock to them. And oftentimes their knowledge of agriculture, horticulture, that's why someone like St. Fiacra is the patron saint of gardeners, because he was great with the hoe and showed them how to, how to, how to grow crops and things like that. So it's not unique, but it's the idea that it was in the midst of the chaos, there was this fresh impetus that went out oftentimes in the rural areas where there had been a lot of devastation and loss in terms of Roman villas and things like that, and established these monastic centers which grew to become very thriving monasteries, the same way that the Benedictine tradition down in the south became thriving in Italy and, other, and eventually was transferred up to the northern part of Europe as well. Thank there, you. Fine there's question. a question coming in from online. Were there any joint male and female monasteries? Yes, there were. 
Um, there were a number of famous Irish women saints. St. Bridget is one, St. Ida. As a matter of fact, there, there was a lot of mutual cooperation in the early church in Ireland. There wasn't always this sort of separation. It was not uncommon at all for the monks to have their monastery and then for there to be nuns also close by that would work with schools and things like that. Uh, sort of the sharper division is something that happened later in Ireland, more in the 18th and the, and the 19th century, but a lot of times women were viewed as capable of evangelizing too. St. Bridget would go around in her chariot, all right, traveling around the roads, establishing convents everywhere. But uh, consecrated virginity for women was something held in high esteem as it was for men, and there was a great deal of cooperation. St. Ida is another one of the early Irish uh, women saints. But the catalog uh, of saints, it makes your head spin. It's like going to Spain in the 15th century, you know, where there's just a deluge of sanctity, you know, and great mystical writing. Uh, and so that's been a big part, and so much so that uh, it's, it's sort of flattering, but any time an Irish monk would arrive, they were considered to be a saint because they came from this, the Holy Island type of thing. But that was this reputation, and a lot of it was because of the asceticism, the discipline, the poverty, but also the way in which there was a, a, a getting down to people on their, smelling like the sheep, so to speak. You know, you've heard that before. And I think that was something that really facilitated the whole evangelization and their success. But men and women worked very closely, particularly in the early part of the Irish church, in the Golden Age as well. Terence is writing in online uh, and is asking, what should be said of the contribution of St. Declan? Declan is actually considered to be one of the pre-patrician saints. The tradition is he was actually ordained in Rome and came, but he worked way down among the Deci clan, which would way be down in Cork. Uh, and he had, a, he had established a monastery, and actually the tallest round tower, intact round tower, is his monastery at Ardmore. And he's, the tradition says he's buried there. So he would have done some initial evangelization. Probably Palladius wasn't the first one, because Palladius was sent ad scotus Christe credendi, to the Scots believing in Christ. So there were some contacts with Christianity, obviously through trade with Britain, trade with Gaul, also trade with Spain. There's evidence that there was trade was carried on. So the faith would have been there in some small form, certainly not in any type of organized form, nor was the whole country evangelized. That's why the primacy of the evangelical effort was really given to Patrick. But he would have been a pre-patrician saint. The tradition was ordained in Rome, and he evangelized the southern region region uh, close to Cork and Cove. We'll end with this question from Pat. He writes, are there examples of pre-Christian Celtic traditions which St. Patrick permitted or absorbed? Oh yeah, there, well, I don't know if you want to talk about inculturalization. The Druids had a, a very thing about water that was sacred. They had holy wells and things like that. And this was something that Patrick took full advantage of. And so the idea of having the bishop or the priest bless the well, the use of holy water for curative properties, that was just one concrete example of something that they, they would take advantage of. But then also, among the pagan Irish, the Druid class and the Feely, the poets, etc., there was there was a certain level of education they had, and so when Patrick brought Latin, this was like the new learning. And a lot of those who had been experts in Brehan law and things like that jumped to that and began the learning of Roman law, ecclesiastical law, and things like that. But pagan traditions such as the Holy Well is something that would have been you know, taken by Patrick and then turned very much to the use of Christian. Also, the love of the word, uh, the word as being something that is sacred. 
but other things uh, in terms of just the rural nature of life in Ireland, you can see where anyone who's ever read the Psalms or looked at the parables that Christ would, would preach in the gospel, the nature of rural life in Ireland, you're around sheep, they would understand what it means to be a good shepherd, what sheep would be like, uh, and all those type of things really would have resonated with the people in a very concrete way. But I think the holy wells, because water was a very sacred thing to, to the Celts, is something that Patrick used and took full advantage of. Also the idea that be, even among the pagans, the idea that before you would write poetry, you would fast. So the idea of fasting before a big feast day, or before is something that continued in with the Christian poets and Christian saints, before they would write their prayers, they would spend time fasting and prayer, etc. So a lot of those things were basically baptized by Patrick, and I think really did assist the evangelization of the country as well. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.